Okay, so hi everyone. Today I have Kalia Rivet with me. He's the host of Universalism Against the World podcast. And uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Cal? Um, let me see. Uh, you know, I, I don't have any kind of professional credentials or degrees or anything like that. I don't have any business talking about the things that. Um, I talk about, for the most part, um, theology, speculative theology is just a, a passion of mine. And um, it's, it's the sort of thing that I can't not think about. So um, that's kind of why I have spent upwards of maybe 70 recorded hours um, just talking about theological topics because I feel compelled to make sense of them. Um, but it's not like, you know, it's in any way a professional project, um, you know, or, you know, the production value of my podcast is really low. It's really just, it's an audio journal. It's just me thinking aloud on different topics. Interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm an amateur too. I do not have like uh, some kind of philosophy degree or anything like that. I just like philosophy as a hobby generally it's, it's it's similar to yours like i cannot stop thinking about philosophy theology you know so yeah we are in the same boat it seems so anyways my first question to you is like how did you get into universalism basically um you know i I maybe first started believing, so I was raised Hare Krishna. It's like ISKCON. I, I don't know if you're all that familiar with them, but you know, it's just it's just basically the Hinduism of uh, Northeast India. Uh, is it primarily centered in Bengal? The, the teaching that grew out of, um, but the tradition that grew out of the teaching of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the Sankirtan leader, you know, the guys who just go out in the, streets uh, and play their Madunga drums and Kartal uh, symbols. And there was a prophecy that that Sankirtan movement would spread uh, all over the world. And uh, in the 50s, no, the 70s, 60s, I want to say, um, Bhaichara and Bhaktivedanta uh, sort of fulfilled that prophecy. He brought that movement to the global West. My father joined that, and I was a Hare Krishna until I was about age 16 or so, at which point I just stopped believing. I didn't think there was any really good evidence for any religious belief, and I was an atheist for a long time. Then when I was 28 or so, I, I started at least, well, I had, I had a very kind of conflicted or complicated relationship with Christianity where I, I sort of almost gravitated toward the label of, you know, Calvinism. And, and sort of describe myself as a Calvinist because I felt I felt compelled to to research it and uh, you know to to, to to research the Bible and Christianity and uh, and you know even to pray to Jesus, but I didn't really have any kind of like intellectual foundations for that faith, and um, so it was kind of a mysterious 
form of faith um, that almost seemed to bespeak a kind of divine determinism, you know, a la Calvinism. And, um, and then, but my faith, the faith that I had of that kind, which told, see, like, I just thought, like, basically, whatever reason you have to believe in God and all the knowledge that you can have about him comes to a very kind of circumscribed or narrow channel. It's just whatever the Bible says, but not even what the Bible says. It's just a very narrow tradition of interpretation of what the Bible says. And however strange it may appear, you have to accept it. Um, you know, sort of like when the, the disciples hear Jesus saying, uh, that, you know, this is, this is my body and this is, uh, this is my blood. He said, this is a hard saying. You can hear it. Well, you just tough deal with it. Um, but, but, uh, but the faith that I had that kind didn't last too long. It almost kind of died away. Um, but at, around that time, I experimented with psychedelics. Um, and, uh, and that in and of itself did not convince me of God's existence. But it made me, it made me suspect that the way that... Hmm, I mean, it, it just it just made me suspect that that reality was not the materialist uh, sort of uh, ontology or, or or you know thing that I had imagined it to be, um, possibly. And and so I, I sort of renewed the the philosophical search for God. And and um, uh, there was a there was a a theory, a paper um, um, by a, by an American uh, philosopher, also an amateur, an autodidact uh, named Christopher Langan, that helped me very much to make sense of theological questions that I had no way of dealing with before. And so the combination of sort of experimenting with psychedelics and then reading that theory um, gave me a new kind of um relationship to spiritual questions where i no longer saw the answers to spiritual questions as coming exclusively through some kind of narrow or 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 limited channel um but i thought instead you know it's like reality is unified and god is knowable um the in you know like in and every form of inquiry it all it all leads to god it naturally you know terminates in god um and that, you know, that includes your, your intuitions about sort of what a morally perfect being is. And, and it's, once you're starting to sort of relate to God and, and seek after him with your whole heart, it becomes very, very difficult to, to reconcile some notion of an arbitrary um, either limit to God's uh, there is, it becomes very difficult to reconcile the, the God that you sense in your heart with some kind of um, notion of an arbitrary limit to God's love, either in time, like he loves you until you die, at which point it's like you're on your own, um, or uh, he only loves a certain number of people and the rest of them, you know, he'd care less or they were, they were created, they were created to be destroyed. Um, you know, and, and it's not as if, there aren't scriptures in, in the Bible, for example, that sort of give one this impression. I mean, even as I said those words, a certain verse from Peter came to mind. 
talking about the, you might say, reprobate, the non-elect, as um, being just like animals, creatures of instinct, created to be caught and destroyed. Um, you know, uh, sort of like the American preacher, uh, I want to say his name was Driscoll, last name was Driscoll. He was the subject of that recent uh, sort of documentary podcast by, uh, what, are, what are they? I see, I don't even, I don't even remember the name of the, the organ, but it's, it's, a, it's a media organ. And they did a whole series about this guy whose name was, his last name was Driscoll. And he, he had like a kind of tragic sort of rise and fall. Um, and when he, when he was on his Calvinist arc, <laughs> as, as the kids these days might say, he said, well, you know, some, some, of, some of you guys, God just created you to be matchsticks. So, you know, if that offends you, just deal. Dang. <laughs> I think you were, to, you were talking about Mark Driscoll or something. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, yeah. I've heard him from, I think, Ryan Mullins, I think. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. But, you know, it's interesting that <clears throat> our journeys have been little bit different but somewhat similar like I was also a Hindu (laughs) and uh, I left my former religion because I mean problem of evil problem of suffering you know divine hiddenness prayers did not seem to work like and and it, it, it felt strange to me that people were like petition praying that God please help me get you know good grades or something while some other people were literally dying of horrific diseases cancer and stuff like that so it seemed strange and you know it's even even the karma system like didn't really solve much of problem of evil like they would say that, okay, look, uh, so the thing is Hinduism has a kind of an inductive universalist view. Like you still get like continuous opportunities, infinite, you know, perhaps opportunities to, you know, uh, be with God, do virtuous thing. And there are like, uh, one is temporary heaven, one is temporary uh, hell. And then there is like a permanent, yeah, I think then there is like the permanent kind of heaven uh, and you get pretty much infinite chances to get to the permanent kind of heaven. But the problem was the erasure of memories, right? <laughs> With every rebirth cycle, like your memories are erased and like their reasoning was like the memories are erased so that, you know, you do not feel like really sad or something like that. But the thing is, without memories, how do you know what, what things you've done wrong and how can you improve and stuff like that? And uh, in some sense, it becomes pretty much random, right? Uh, like, uh, even though you have infinite chances, but it is like completely randomized because you can be born as a psychopath in the next life or something like that. And uh, it's it's like perhaps some will arbitrarily take like a million years and some will arbitrarily take like perhaps maybe 
60 years and they will get the permanent heaven or something. So that was a problem. And then there was also a problem like if someone was born in an unfortunate situation and if we accept karma system, now karma system involves like if you have done bad things in the past life, then in the next life you will deserve to be born in an unfortunate situation. And I thought if someone deserves, you know, that situation that they are in, then why are people actually, you know, helping those people, right? I mean, of course, perhaps maybe you can bring some mercy in there, something like that, but it just did not make sense because even the initial, like, okay, how did we even get here, right? That's the first question, right? Like, what was the point of creation of human beings? What, why would human beings turn away from God, you know? Even even Hindu is Hindu God is considered like very good, you know, kind, compassionate, caring. Of course, you know there are some disagreements within the tradition. Like um, there are different traditions within Hinduism which disagree about this stuff. So there were many perhaps problems, and then you know, I became an atheist, I suppose, and I was more fascinated with. Christianity and Islam because they were more scary and they had it's scary in the sense that like they had this like they have to evangelize right they have to convert people to save them from like literal eternal conscious torture or eternal conscious uh, torment right and they it's like a very it, these two religions felt really more scary than, than perhaps even Hindu versions of hell, because even Hindu versions of hell, even though there is like a messed up torture going on in those hell, but it's still temporary. Now it's still, I think a problem, but the temporariness perhaps maybe kind of, you know, eases people a bit and there is no conversion as far as I know, like you are not literally looking for other people to convert to your religion to save them from eternal conscious torture. You know, I mean, this is so interesting in and of itself because you, yeah. know, you can talk about how, you know, how, how agitated um, it makes sense uh, to be about, about the question of people going to hell because it, Personally, you know, I suspect hell is so bad that you should have the same attitude toward it, whether it lasts forever in whatever flawed conception of time you have or doesn't. Um, like, you know, the, the nature of pain on some level is just to feel endless. And, and like, I think the more sophisticated understanding of the eternality of hell refers is, is qualitative. And, you know, there's something about, you know, it's like eternity and timelessness. It's not so much like, I don't know, infinite temporality or like static eventlessness. That's more like um, the nature of the present moment when you attend to it fully. And, you know, that that pain is so intense that you're fully in that pain. There's no past and no future. You know, I think that's kind of what it's talking about. And that, by definition, is the worst thing that you can experience. And it has to be avoided at all costs. 
Um, but I want to back up because this is super interesting to me. I want to back up to something you were saying about reincarnation because like you, I was raised in that system and I didn't think it made much sense. And I sort of hear it sounded to me like it makes as little sense to you as it does to me. Is that right? Like you don't really believe in reincarnation anymore. I mean, there's other views of it. There's the new age views. And with your permission, I can even sort of read a little, is it a mini essay? Just a, a, a series of, I laid out some problems because you did a good job of sort of laying out the concerns with the Hindu karma-based conception of reincarnation. And the, the problems are many. Um, but, you know, I sort of, I was looking at it from a more new age perspective. And I wrote the following. Hopefully it won't take too long to read. But I mean, there was just basically a number of problems. Maybe I'll read the first one and see how, how, much, it make, how much it makes sense. So problem one, I'm setting it up like prior to my incarnation in my pre-incarnate state, it would appear that I had a level of cognitive complexity roughly analogous to that of a human being. After all, my pre uh, on this new age conception of reincarnation, my pre-incarnate mind was capable of forming purposes and the purposes it formed were to pursue the sort of learning objectives that are meaningful to a human. It is worth noting that the concepts and categories in which these objectives were couched are necessarily more complex than those available to, for example, a dragonfly or an amoeba, unless we attribute a kind of hidden and highly anthropomorphized consciousness or intelligence to dragonflies and amoebas. So the question arises, why slash how was my pre-incarnate conscious, how did it come to be at a roughly human level of complexity as opposed to, you know, a dragonfly level of complexity? It may be answered that my pre-incarnate consciousness reached this level of complexity by successively incarnating up some notional ladder of biological complexity. That is, first it was a prokaryote, then a fish, and later an ape, and so on. But it would be worth noting in that case that my current human incarnation, beginning as it did from the low level of consciousness associated with a zygote, already recovers the distance from zero to one, so to speak. That is, my human incarnation already rec recapitulates the development from virtually no consciousness to highly advanced consciousness, again, barring the attribution of some kind of hidden and highly anthropomorphized consciousness you know, to the zygote that is later lost through some sort of amnesia. So one of my questions about reincarnation is, um, given that ontogeny already recapitulates phylogeny, why would ultimate reality, God, choose to develop souls through such an apparently wasteful and inefficient process? Why not create from nothing once and have done with it? Another way to appreciate the force of this question is to ask whether one has lived an actually infinite number of past lives, an incoherent idea, or a finite number. Given that it would seem necessarily to have been a finite number, we are again left with the inference of creation from nothing. And if so, then why not have one act of creation from nothing rather than two, especially since roughly the same amount of cognitive growth can be achieved within the much shorter interval uh, associated with a human lifetime. So that was half of it. So there's still more, but the, the, other, the other one, the other problem, excuse me, if I'm not rambling on too long. The other problem is like, what is the difference between being the reincarnation of X and being an ontologically distinct being with certain formal resemblances to X? It is presumably misleading to say that one is the reincarnation of one's father, especially when one's father is still alive. Um, 
and, and, you know, there's sort of a problem with all notions of reincarnation that the Hindu notion included of like, how do I articulate some principled basis whereon I can distinguish between, okay, you know, um, um, this squirrel is the reincarnation of me is scenario A. In scenario B, this squirrel is a totally different squirrel. Like it has a different soul, but you know, it has the same conscious experiences as would the hypothetical uh, uh, reincarnation of me squirrel in, in scenario A. And, and you know, it's like when you, when, when possession or non-possession of the soul doesn't lead to any differences in conscious experience, then it's like we're defining the soul in such a way that it, it has no, it's like it doesn't affect anything and it isn't caused by anything. And that's very explicit. And it, it's, not, it's not affected by anything and it doesn't cause any effects of its own. And the Vedas are very explicit about that. And so, but that's literally the definition of something that doesn't exist. <laughs> if it doesn't affect anything and it's not caused and it's not, and it's not in turn affected by anything, you're this is literally the definition of a non-entity. What a tremendous problem. Um, so yeah, for that reason, I, I really have a hard time with reincarnation. Um, and of course, it could be true in some way that I don't understand. But then again, so could Calvinism be. I, I'm interested by you and by where you ended up, because it seems like you ended up at a place that's not specifically Christian, it's not Hindu, it's not, it's not discernibly new age. It's just some kind of, if you like, neutral theism. It's, but, but it's um, uh, like a kind of universal it's optimistic similar i have influences from christianity influences for some influences from islam too uh, so i mean so first of all i want to like also like perhaps another import i want to get to another perhaps important problem with with you know theistic hinduism is that there is a sense of like liberation right you're permanently liberated but the problem is what do people do after in that state or perhaps during that state, like what are people doing? Yeah, are in they... that state, they scarcely exist. They're not even themselves anymore. There's no intelligible notion of like value and the, uh, or, or desire and the fulfillment of desire. It's nirvana essentially. Yeah, but, and that's the thing, right? Like what, what does it mean to be permanently satisfied? Like, what are you doing in that state? Are you actually like, living more are you enjoying your life can you actually go like as as that heaven is permanent so what are the things that are going on there and there's also i i want to emphasize that like there is this sense that all these things that we are doing currently a lot of things perhaps like you know art creation music you know uh, science, engineering, and all these uh, creative activities that we are doing, inventive activities that we are doing, they are all materialistic. And uh, uh, we have to liberate ourselves from these activities too. And the problem is, it, it just seems like you are destroying desire, you're destroying yourself. You are dying, you're dead at that point because i yeah go ahead yeah yeah because i mean the thing is these creative activities are valuable we 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 consider aesthetic 
aesthetic values generally uh, philosophers i think currently consider uh, like who are moral realists are also seem to be aesthetic realists aesthetic objectivists so if you destroy aesthetic value completely where there is no creativity there is also no need for any creativity where people are not creative at all they are just just in a permanent state where they are not doing anything at all they are not creating any music they are not listening to any music they are not creating art listening to art they're not enjoying themselves in different ways you know so i think yeah, that's the very of sort of problem. impersonal conception of the brahman right because the brahman yeah. is so absolutely absolute and infinitely infinite that it might as well be contradiction itself <laughs> um you know it's both x and not x neither x nor not x and and it's real interesting because the tradition that i came out of was explicitly personalist and and um invade very much against these sort of impersonalist um I, I i don't know what i in fact maybe you can help me understand this but when you take the bhagavad gita for example there's some that interpret you know the godhead impersonally and there are some interpretations that see see it as like, like in, in the Hare krishna tradition krishna is effectively saying or in, he's interpreted as saying look the brahman is for the gyanis and the speculators and the seekers they end up there. That's just my glory. It's, imper it's impersonal. It's my effulgence. But if you really desire me, you can find me through the path, the path of bhakti yoga. And then you go to like Goloka Vrindavan, which is, it's a, it's a, it's a personalist. It's like, it's a, you know, Krishna is there as a person and you, and you relate in a, you know, in a finite way, like things are defined. There are, there are desires that are fulfilled. And what's very interesting is how the problems that you're raising, um, you know, let's say with the impersonal Brahman, are not by any means limited to Hinduism. I think they're more or less um, entailed by, by the metaphysics of classical theism, unless they're augmented by some kind of additional uh, 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 metaphysical ideas. And, and I think that Langan kind of did a great job of showing like how how what's true in classical theism can be balanced in process theism, although he uses nothing like that language. But I think that his CTMU is is his theory. It's 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 um it's it's sophisticated enough that that it 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 shows you a way to holding these two things together. But see, just to give you an example, if you have like if you have the absolutely simple God of, of classical theist metaphysics, but that it has no parts. And another way of saying that is like. You can identify that with the Brahman, like the absolutely absolute, infinitely infinite, because it's like it doesn't have any internal differentiation. So it's like it's it's like on one level, it's both itself um, and its complement. That is, it's both what it is and what it isn't at the same time. It has no opposites. And and if you you know that thing can't love you because it's beyond, you know, it's it's it, it, how can it be personal? It's beyond personal and impersonal and how can it be love it's both love and not love to say one or the other would be to put a limit on it um and and um you know i i would say that if you take a panpsychist metaphysic and just view the totality of what is real which is for somewhat advanced reasons necessarily finite just think about it like you know there 
infinite totality is a contradiction in terms. And if some things are, then some things aren't. Um, otherwise, you know, neither predication or active predication has any meaning. So if you have the if you have the like the panpsychic consciousness of everything that is, that's theoretically a consciousness that that has some sense, like you and I do, some sense of otherness within itself, and which can even relate to its parts or subprocessors as, you know, it, it can it it can relate to them just as it can relate to itself as a whole, because like all forms of consciousness, it's reflexive. Well, some will say not all forms of consciousness are reflexive, but that that's a maybe a whole other thing. I yeah. sort of suspect that they are. But um, um, so if you have this, this you have this panpsychic totality of everything real, like the mind of the, the universe understood in the sense of everything real, not really everything physical. Um, you don't have to call that God, you can call it Shmod. But the, the question is, what, what about Shmod? Does Shmod have like, like actual, like, literal, predicable love for you? Um, and does he have desires? Can he, in fact, be made angry? Does a lot of the Old Testament language um, uh, not, in fact, uh, you know, possibly make sense in reference to him? Um, it, you know, there's all kinds of interesting questions. And I, I, I think basically <laughs> you, you need to have both God and Shmod, if you like. Or, you know, I also think this is God. I just look at it as the Trinity. It's God in sense A, God in sense B, Father, Son. And then there's the dynamic, the relationship between the finite and the infinite. You know, you can call that sense C. It's yeah. the Holy Spirit. But so, so I would say that I think I think first of all I think you would probably know more about this than me because you were much more perhaps immersed in it. Like I was not perhaps that devout. Uh, but I I would say that you are correct that like my parents are personalists. They, they believe that, you know, there is a permanent, even if there is permanent heaven, there is like things, good things will be there, like beauty will be there. People will experience, you know, good things like beautiful scenery, you know, beautiful art. Well, that in and of itself, you might say is, is finitism or personal. Well, I see what you're saying, personalism on the side of at least the creatures remaining persons. So the Hare Krishnas would say God himself is there as a person. Um, I'm not sure if your parents would necessarily agree with that. I think they would. Like, because, I mean, I think if general, general Hindus who are not uh, that much into, I think, the major philosophy, I think most Hindus would agree that God is a person and also the heaven they are going to go to is a place where things will happen, go on. I agree. The non-philosophers usually get this right. You know, um, uh, the Manus Friedman, who, well, he, he is something of a philosopher, but, you know, he's a, he's a Hasidic rabbi. And I think he sort of made waves, but, you know, I agree with it completely. He said, who needed whom? We were just minding our business not existing. If God created us unilaterally with no, no input <laughs> uh, 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 from us. And, um, you know, it's like God, God, um, God needs us. Um, he needs us to love him. Um, and, um, you know, he, he has emotions. He has thoughts. Um, uh, he, you know, he is a consciousness as well as consciousness. You know, it's itself. Like consciousness itself or the ground of being is just like the most generic level of his being. 
And it's that into which he moves and expands eternally. But um, it's not all there is to say about God. It's, we haven't exhausted, you know, and, and, and truly, if God were just like, you know, neither nor both and, this utterly ineffable, apathetic, uh, absolutely simple thing, or you can't even say thing, you can't even choose one noun that properly refers to him. The whole point is you can't refer to him. You have a definition of God, which is completely equivalent to nothingness completely it's indistinguishable from it my goodness you know um and and um you know the Tao that cannot be named that can be named is not the Tao, and i'm not talking about what i'm talking about so what are you talking about <laughs> you know it's like it's 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 go nowhere like i i'm really with that pre theoretical approach where it's like god is kind of like oh your god is just a big man in the sky kind of <laughs> yeah no kind of Reality is strange. I, I think that's how it is. Yeah, and I think, you know, Ryan Mullins, the neoclassical theism, you know, the open theism, I think is very, very, uh, like... I respect him a lot. He's sensitive to a lot of these issues. That's, in fact, yeah, what, what I enjoy about I, his podcast. It, it makes sense, I like to think of it that way. Like, it, it, it seems the most uh sorry uh i have ocd so i mean i'm not i don't want to diagnose myself here or anything but like i think it it it's makes the most sense it, it it is the most coherent coherent view i think because ryan mullins when when i'm when he's talking about classical theism and neoclassical theism open theism he defines his terms and those terms actually map our intuitions very well. And they map to, I think, even biblical data well too, you know. And even, even I think, even in the Hindu books, as I said, right, like I think in, the, in, in Mahabharata and Ramayana, right, God is a being who feels, who feels sad, who feels you know, who is participating with human beings, you know, so it is the neoclassical version, I think that makes the most sense. And I think any synthesis with like Joshua Sijuade, he's a philosopher, he tried, he's, he, I think he has written a paper synthesizing classical and neoclassical. I think, I think Ryan Mullins, I, I talked to Ryan Mullins about this and he said, I, I, I he said like, no, these are mutually exclusive. Like if you are a classical theist, you believe in absolute divine simplicity, you know, like divine impassibility, divine timelessness and divine immutability, then, then, you, then that is a very different from the neoclassical theism, which is that divine is passable. God is temporal, God is in time and God is not absolutely simple. So these are very exclusive views. And I think uh, even trying to synthesize classical with neoclassical, I think becomes, I think in my view, it just seems incoherent. Like, I think so. So Please just give me one moment, just one moment. Yeah, yeah, sure.
I'm sorry, you were saying, you were talking about, you were saying you think that just trying to synthesize classical and neoclassical views. Yeah, because uh, you have to like define your terms and actually elaborate on these things, right? You have to explain how are they synthesizing, why and how, like, because here's the thing with classical theism, right? Like one problem is how does God reincarnate? Why, why would God create when he's, in in the state of pure bliss, pure absolutely bliss. Absolutely. I was running absolutely. through those questions when I and, was sort of responding to uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, on the, the end for which God created the, the world, his treatise. It's, it's, they're, they're almost inescapable or or uh, un, unanswerable questions. And and another important thing is a classical thesis affirm not just these things, classical theists affirm. Like there, like I think uh, Brian Leftal is a classical theist. Catherine Rogers is a classical theist, and they affirm Aquinas. Aquinas is a classical theist. They affirm that God does not literally have compassion. God does not literally have empathy. God does not literally have this relationship kind of love. God, God it is I think called doctrine of. Uh, absolute divine independence or something where mm. divine is not related at all to the creation. So like they affirm that no, God is not, God does not have any empathy. When you are feeling sad, when you are suffering, God does not feel that suffering. God does not cry. God cannot be sad at all. God is in the state of pure bliss. Absolutely. Whereas I think if you, think like I do and I think everybody should obviously just get it but but you know if you if you think like I do that 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 God um as say the second person of the trinity say the cosmic Christ he's he's in some sense the mind or the consciousness of the cosmos as a whole but still can you know relate to itself as to another like all kinds of like all forms of consciousness, it has a kind of inner, if you like, what otherness or complementarity. Um, but but um, it it is in Linda Zabs or if that's her first name, Zagzabsky's sense. It is omnisubjective. It feels everything that its creatures feel, but sort of in the way that you feel everything that all the cells in your body feel. You don't feel it quay or as the qualia or percepts or experiences of those cells because to have those exact experiences would be to be as local and limited as those cells but nonetheless it experiences if you like a translation you know of, of, of what all the say cells of its body um, experience but in an integrated way right so it's like same but different the chintya beta beta that's a great phrase from chaitanya mahaprabhu talking about the the relationship um, between you know God and God and uh, not not God God and Jiva, um, and I think that there's there's something about consciousness about ultimate reality which is fractal and holographic and trippy where where everything it's not a whole that's reducible to parts and all the parts in some way or at the very least in the informational image of the whole um, in in a sort of uh, way that's difficult to, to fully wrap one's mind around but um but 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 yeah no talking about like say that divinely impassable god and who is i mean he's in some sense yeah he's, he's little more than a psychopath 
uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's a Moses is kind of pushing it when he describes it like that. But I mean, um, it's interesting how the NDE data, if you can call them that, I mean, they're highly inconsistent and they shouldn't all be presumptively seen as true. But one of the most fascinating things that the NDEs uh, will sometimes say, but then again, in fairness, they sort of say everything. Um, uh, but, you know, some NDEs that I was really intrigued by talked about God like having emotions and getting angry and needing us. Um, but, but also being like, um, but mostly what they seem to say is he's just like unfathomably loving and merciful, um, which, you know, it, it, why would classical theism feel so compelled to keep reiterating those things? I mean, in Islam, it's just all over the place. You really get that sense of God, you know, like he, he gets mad but he's also really loving and merciful. And in the Old Testament, you know, that's how he is. And that's certainly the father that Jesus talks about. Yeah. And, 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 and it's like, you don't have to met, make it a metaphor, guys. It's like, it's maybe, you know, take, take your, your scriptural data seriously. Um, yeah. Again, data, <laughs> maybe the wrong word, but. And that's the thing, right? We, but we also need to take our own uh, experience, emotional experience seriously, because, the thing is, what what a, a person who 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 loves you, who cares about you, you feel secure around him. You can relate to him. You know, you, when you love someone, you care about someone. You you connect someone when you talk to someone. You know, you can relate to him. Uh, the thing with classical theistic God, it's. Well, it's it's strange. It's it's weird how we relate to him, how he relates to us, and weird things. But generally, okay, you also asked me like uh, what my view was, right, about God and stuff. Like, I'm not a Hindu. I'm not a Christian, or you know, I'm not a, a Muslim. So, what my view is. Well, I'm listening to the neoclassical theists who are Christians generally, like, you know, Ryan Mullins. And I'm also listening to agnostic people like, you know, Joe Schmidt, Majesty of Reason. And uh, I'm listening to these guys and I'm thinking, okay. Emerson what... Green. Yes, Emerson. Making a lot of the same compelling points that, that you were just making that I was in my way trying to make. One of the great questions that I really appreciated from Emerson Green it was he, he was asking, you know, if God is in any meaningful sense a mind, um, you know, or, or consciousness, what sense can we make of a consciousness in quiescence or an utterly still or inactive consciousness? You know, yeah. to, you know to be a consciousness is perforce to be changing, uh, moving, and if you like, like breathing. It, consciousness yeah. is living. Um, and, uh, you know, Green, Emerson Green did a really good job of just kind of exposing the, the limitations of a of sort of the, I don't know, the kind of simplistic theology that at least a lot of us start out with or are given to understand is the, you know, it's 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 the theology you have to hold if you're to believe in God. God is, he he knows, you know, he's he's just like, he's just like omni this omni that omni everything like and and it's just like a like a just like a list of adjectives that like when you take them all together just make him in like make him into this kind of like static incomprehensible block thingy like yeah. it, it just um anyway but but yeah i like emerson green 
Um, I like uh, Joe Schmid, um, although I mean he's he's kind of um, he's kind of kind of up there, pretty technical and kind of in stuff that I I feel like if you had intuition, you would see that it's sort of irrelevant if you can look at it from a thirty thousand foot view. You see that it's not that complicated. Um, the CTMU was a great way to see the, the, the philosophical what necessity, inevitability of God. Um, that if, if one needs it to be made technical, then I think the CTMU is really good. If you give it a chance, if you don't just dismiss it as some work of pseudo-intellectualism pseudo just because it happens to use some neologisms, which, you know, I think some of those neologisms don't necessarily need to be there, but but um, uh, but it's um, it's pretty fantastic. I have a sneaking feeling that in decades to come, people are going to be all over that um, uh, to a degree, which some people will find annoying. But I I think that the CTMU is fairly inevitable, um, and I certainly see what's very interesting is how ten years ago, you know, I had some interest in philosophy of mind, um, possibly large measure due to the influence of David Chalmers. I see philosophy of mind bending very much in the direction of panpsychism. And even if you look on Kurt Jaimungle's channel, for example, the theories of everything, and you got these guys like Donald Hoffman, who's real interesting. It's all going in the direction of the CTMU. You yeah, can just I, either do it well or do it badly. And I think the CTMU does it rather well. Uh, metaphysical idealism, which is like a very strong view too. Bernardo Castro is one of the Yeah, it's 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 similar. It's it's kind of just like I would say CTMU light. There are some things in Hoffman's and, and Castro's views that um, I think are not as 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 spelled out um, as they could be. Some issues that have not been addressed as comprehensively as they might be. Though the work of Langan is is inter interesting. I I I just recommend everyone to check it out. But uh, yeah, yeah, and and I think that not that I agree with the the author of. Sorry to keep interrupting you, but I, it's not that I agree with Langan on everything. You know, when it, when it comes to like teleology, if you like the will of God, I don't think he he seems to appreciate. You know, uh, uh, say the depth of God's love, which, in fairness, is something we all have trouble appreciating. But just some of the ways that Langan talks about God, sometimes it seems to me like. He just doesn't, just doesn't, doesn't understand. Anyway, so. Um, yeah, so I, I would say like, as I said, like I look at these, you know, philosophers discussions going on and uh, I like to think of myself as optimistic theist. And like when it comes to a particular, when it comes to uh, thinking about which version of theism like classical or neoclassical or open i think i'm leaning toward open theism uh, i think open theism makes yeah me too <laughs> except that if you affirm both open theism and universalism there is a certain at the very least paradox there because you're affirming a kind of divine determinism as well as maximal freedom but you know if you take the view like ethical intellectuals like basically if you do evil yeah. right and wrong are objective and if you do wrong or evil it's because you are ignorant about some key feature of reality just inescapably otherwise it's arbitrary all right yeah. and if you take that ethical intellectualism seriously 
you'll see that there isn't any necessary tension between the idea that, that you know, each soul is maximally free, but they also all end up where God wants them to be because yeah. God knows what's best for all of us. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway. So, yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing that I'm doing. The, the reason I do not like uh, convert to any particular religion and the main reason is that I think, well, there were perhaps historical problems, evidential problems, and you have to perhaps, you know, maybe synthesize and like, I don't know, there are many perhaps things that are stopping me from converting to any particular version of theism. I generally like to stay general, open theist, optimistic theist, you know, universally. Well, you know, if you, if you take God as love seriously, then Jesus is really compelling. That's that's the thing. Now, does that mean that you have to? Does that mean you have to view the Bible as like literally inerrant, um, and and each and each gospel as being like an eyewitness or journalistic account of events? You know, no, I wouldn't I, say so. I think there's a lot of stuff in there that's probably not true, or at least not internally coherent, right? And yeah. and um, uh, you know that that's just not required. You know, I I think that. The, the 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 christ event if you like jesus of nazareth there's something spooky um about him in terms of not only how much he answers one's innate sense of how a true son of god would comport himself if god is love but but also how much he sort of expands and clarifies and redefines you know which what you you know thought that would you know, be like now. Of course, it's possible to misread him as essentially playing some yeah and ridiculous, I mean, arbitrary power game involving the elect and the unelect. But, but I'm sorry, go ahead. There was a whole thing with tradition too, right? Like the tradition, Aquinas, and these major philosophers in the past, uh, in the Christian tradition, the the things that church affirmed and did, the catechism and the whole tradition. Like, I mean. The thing is, if I if I call myself Christian, or like, there is a lot of biblical data. Now, of course, some data I think perhaps would support universalism, but generally you have to also you know use philosophy to for that. Uh, some data does not support universalism that much, I think. And then there is like tradition, right? Catholics would say, well, the tradition. Uh, the out of like a few church fathers, majority of church fathers and saints affirmed a kind of very horrific view of hell, eternal conscious torture, eternal conscious torment. There were many saints right. who right. were like said that hell is a very horrific place. There is like I think uh, his channel name is like uh, Pinch with Aquinas, Matt Fred, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he talked what? about like eternal conscious torture. And how horrible it is! How like he quoted many saints of the church who were like uh, saying like hell is a very horrific place and it is eternal and stuff like that. And I mean, so it's it's that if I call myself Christian now and uh, like read the Bible and stuff like that, then of course there are other Christians that I have to perhaps talk to, and they would say, "Hey, you Fight are not with. real Christian." You have you have to you have to kind of like just use basic common sense to convince them that god is not molech that won't sacrifice his children you know, to <laughs> yeah, the fire to some right. abstract principle of like eternal retribution um it, the yeah well you know you're certainly right 
to point out that not all, say, the biblical data agree or, or indicate or suggest that, that there is a final restoration um, yeah. or apocatastasis. You know, uh, the book of Revelation, which is at the end um, of the Bible and which most explicitly seems to touch on the, the topic of uh, judgment, the final judgment, second death. It clearly seems to envision um, a final separation between the saved and the damned. And um, now Revelation there. It's it's not only what I mean. You know, Protestants pride themselves on, you know, the principles of sola scriptura and tota scriptura, only scripture and all of scripture. And yet, um, Luther said, quote, he said, I consider this book neither apostolic nor prophetic. And he almost wanted to throw it out. But then he realized it had propaganda value. Um, we, you can sort of read um, uh, the beast as being the pope. And Calvin commented on every book in the Bible except Revelation. It sort of indicates it it's only has semi-canonical status. That being said, I don't want to be understood as saying, you know, Revelation doesn't agree with my particular the theology, therefore throw it out. You know, it's there and it, and it needs to be there. Although, just what sense uh, is to be made of it? You know, it's like it's anybody's guess because it doesn't actually conform to anybody's interpretation of how it should go. The yeah. idea that, you know, it doesn't it doesn't clearly suggest a universalist uh, reconciliation. Um, you know, therefore, universalism is is wrong, sort of suggests that there is this obvious right way to interpret revelation when yeah. there isn't. Um, and. You know, like if, if they're describing like the literal final judgment, presumably that's ahead of us in time, right? And yet, if you read the book of Revelation seriously, according to the author's intent, it's very clear that it should be happening very soon, you know, within, you know, in, in the author's own time. Um, there's just so many indications in the text that it's like that. Now you can just say, well, he got it wrong. Well, okay, if he got it wrong, what else did he get wrong? Or... <laughs> You know, it's like, no, but you have to stretch and bend the meaning to make sure that we can read this as referring to the literal judgment that occurs in our future. Well, then what other ways am I allowed to stretch and bend the text? If you get so much leeway, why don't I? But, you know, it's like people uh, don't normally go there, you know, but yeah, it's, but it's um, like the tradition too, right? The, I have to like pretty much get into the tradition that look many church fathers said this what are you going to do now look saints said this aquinas didn't believe this aquinas was very smart and augustine was smart and calvin was smart or reformed theologians are these great people you know and it clearly bible clearly says this tradition clearly says this you know heresy is really bad and <laughs> i just I, I just get tired and I said, no, it's, it's false. Sadly, I can sort of, I can sort of understand your desire, like to not just not even have to like feel compelled to explain, uh, you know, why the majority or traditional view is like almost certainly wrong because it and, just and doesn't make sense. Thing, in, inside the, if I'm inside the, belief system of Christianity, I have to engage with the tradition, right? I cannot just say that 
tradition is just false. It's wrong. Of course, I think Rand Williams does, I think, say, well, Aquinas was wrong. Augustine was wrong. But uh, it's still kind of, I mean, they can, Ryan Mullins is much more, you know, immersed in the theology and, you know, philosophy, and he has, like, engaged with the whole history of it. You know, he has gone into the history and really went in full. And, of course, there are still theologians and philosophers, you know, like Edward Fazer would disagree with Ryan Mullins, Joe Schmid. And like, you see discussion between Joe Schmid and Fazer. Especially Joe Schmid, like, that's right. He had to write a 40,000 word, I think, big, like a book length response to Fazer. And I'm thinking like, I mean, of course, to kind of, it is inevitable that at some point I have to engage with the tradition, even though I'm, I do not believe in Christianity, I have to like say that, why do I believe the tradition is false or wrong? But I suppose I, I have less baggage with me. Like I do not need to get into, okay, look, scripture says this, and then this says this, and then this says that. I can just use general philosophy and put general philosophy out there and say that, look, if your scripture does not like, if your scripture and if your tradition does not, uh, is not compatible with reason and philosophy, generally contemporary philosophy, then that's a bit of a problem. Like we have a kind of consistent philosophy. You have probably do not have that much consistent. I'm not talking about you, by the way. No, no, no. And I, I fully understand. If, you, if I may, I want to yeah. read something that I wrote about like, um, the, the issue of, G, of Jesus, basically. Because yeah. on some level, it's easy to just have that kind of neutral theism, like, um, oh, what is his name? My memory is so bad. But that guy, he was another universalist, but he, he didn't believe in, he, started, he was initially a Christian, but he eventually just, just jettisoned belief in Jesus, uh, specifically because, you know, he thought that made about as much sense as a square circle does. The idea that the creator can become a creature, uh, or the infinite can become the finite, it is, you know, it's like a, it's a category error. It's a confusion, basically. Now, I don't necessarily think that, um, but, but I'm just summarizing his thoughts. And elsewhere, I've explained, you know, the, the sense in which we can understand Jesus as being God, because it, it, it is a, it's a sort of qualified sense, you know, like the sense that God is everywhere. He's in everything. And then you say he's also, you know, a, a, created man well it's like clearly there's some qualification that has to attach to the yeah. sense in which that man is god um however you know like let me just share this one thing that i read so uh, that i wrote um uh so this guy um i want to say his name was amaro amaralt amiro if you're french um but he's not but he quoted somebody else he was he was the tent maker universalist guy he quoted um, somebody else, one professor Laidlaw of Edinburgh, is saying that some have even said that the theory of expiation, or I would just add more broadly, incarnation, cannot retain its place in the thoughts of the church unless it can be shown that the death or incarnation you know, um, of Christ as a propitiation and a sacrifice for the sins of men 
is the highest expression of an eternal relation between Christ and the human race. In other words, I'll paraphrase it like, unless you can show that Jesus is in any way logically or philosophically or metaphysically necessary, don't make it such a central part of your um, belief system. And what I sort of write in response to that is, um, I have never been convinced by the Unitarian objections that the incarnation is a, a priori impossible. And it's because of stuff I've said elsewhere. Um, but neither have I ever been convinced by any Christian lines of reasoning that the atonement or even the incarnation more broadly is in any way necessitated or explained. You know, it's like mathed out by our, the, our other theological givens. It's just not. That, you know, that the all-powerful and all-rational God who does nothing for arbitrary reasons should choose or be compelled by his nature, whichever one, or both, or neither, to walk the earth in human form is a mystery to me. And I feel the force of the critics here, that if the belief cannot be rationally motivated, it should be jettisoned or at least not assigned high importance. And yet, this is also the point where I most strongly feel the force of Augustine's words, si comprehendis non est Deus. So if you understand that it's not God, or just in some sense that if you think that, how to put it, there's something about the, the mystery of, of Christ, which is, it's a, it's, a, it's a refreshing contrast to this sort of closed box, where, where it's like God just fits in my, in my box. It, it seems, in, in the figure of Jesus, it seems to open into something living and personal and other always eternally you know other and more and beyond what one can um you know conceive within the tiny confines of one's mind but i know i'm still appealing to mystery well i would just say that i would just say that i don't i don't i don't believe that that anyone has has done a job the job where they they explain that theism necessarily leads to the incarnation i also don't think anyone has ruled it out um yeah. and and for me there's just there's a there's something there's something about Jesus, where if you pay attention to him and you take him seriously, um, there's all different kinds of reasons um, uh, to, to lead you to believe or suspect or have faith or you know, whatever exactly the, 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 the description is. Um, there's, there's something really um, suggestive about Jesus, but to, to put it, to put it uh, mildly, there's, there's something going on there in the Christ event. If you, if you take it seriously, it, it opens up the door to like a different way of understanding reality. And that is a little bit uh, mystical and Gnostic, some might even say, but it's the forms of Christianity that are too like radically un-Gnostic and anti-Mysterian that, um, that most miss the mark. Like, you know, I'm thinking again of Calvinism. So um, anyway. Yeah, and the thing is, as you said, right, like I, I'm, I think perhaps reincarnation is okay. Like in my view, like there is a possibility. Like I do, I do not think that. Jesus, Jesus pointed at John the Baptist and said this, if you can believe it, this is a light. What did he mean by that? Um, you know, like um, when, when he said of Judas, um, uh, it would be better for that man had he not been born. But he meant that literally. It's like, uh, not, necess like not necessarily. Um, but, but um, you know, because otherwise, as, as one commenter pointed out, in a, it was a YouTube video of some apologist guy's presentation. He had a very insightful question at the end of his talk. 
asked, you know, if we take Jesus' words like literally, non-hyperbolically, then we are to assume that that the universe that God created is good, but it's not actually good for everyone in it, and that for Judas, the best possible universe would have been that in which he had not been born, assuming any sense can be made of like one being better off not existing. But it's like, no, come on, it's just hyperbole. Um, so anyway, don't take, you know, don't read too much into anything that Jesus says necessarily. It's, you know, he's using hyperbole sometimes, but um, there is, um, I see now I already lost my train of thought because I go on too many tangents, but yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think that, you know, I, I think like Christians like you, Joshua. Reincarnation. Russell, yeah. You know, sorry, real fast. I'm so sorry. It's just, um, he, you know, they asked, they asked Jesus if like the disciple whom he loves, I think it's in John's gospel. They ask him if he's going to be the, 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 the sort of the Jew who lives forever until the return of the Messiah, the wandering Jew, as he's sometimes imagined. And Jesus says something like, I, I could be bungling this, but you know, Jesus says something like, well, if he should remain until I come, then what is that to you? Just you, your job is to follow me. So reincarnation is like, if that's the best possible way things can be, if things are more beautiful that way, then yes. That's different than saying that any version of it that's been articulated here makes any damn sense. Um, uh, uh, but, but anyway, I'm sorry for interrupting you so much, but that's what I wanted to say. No, it's okay. It's okay. So I was saying, like, as I said, uh, right, like Joshua Rasmussen, you, Eric Wrighton, and uh, David Bentley Hart. And I think there are many ways you are, like, perfectly rational, reasonable, and I think true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, for, like, I mean, since I'm not a Christian, so of course there are some things that I believe are false <laughs> with Christianity. But I think you you can be reasonable, rational Christian. Like, there's no problem with that. I I, I think if you get rid of eternal conscious torment, that's a great improvement. And same with if you get rid of annihilationism. I think if you are a universalist, that's a huge improvement. And Christians have been very influential to the views that I hold so I think it's incarnation is all right with me many things are all right it's just that I do not want to deal with the within the tradition if I get into Christianity I, I do not want to deal with their like I do not want to baggage all the dogmatic baggage well you know that Jesus picture. didn't do that much Jesus didn't have much to do with that either you know to 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 quote or paraphrase um, Archbishop Rowan Williams, you don't ever see Jesus rounding on his disciples and then, you know, making them spit out some cate you know, catechumenical uh, answers. Um, or it's like, you know, now explain the relationship between justification and grace and works. And it's like, he doesn't ever do anything like that. Um, you know, Jesus seems to see God as having common sense. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, and, and uh, uh, by and large, everyone else in the Bible does too. We just develop strange theologies that that make uh, salvation. You know, it's like it, it's like even the idea that it's like heaven is a place that you can go to, and there are conditions attached to it, and you can conceive it as being this restrictive or this this unrestrictive or whatever. It's like, that's not, even that's not right. It's like, there at the, when you die, there is 
there is, you can no longer maintain the fiction that this life is all there is, just necessarily you can't. And then you're left with, with the fact of what brought you into being, which is God's love for you. And depending on your orientation to that, that is either heaven or hell. That's all. You know, it's not, heaven is not, not a place that it's like, and these are the conditions of getting in. And it's like, no, it's like, heaven isn't, heaven isn't real. God's love is real. And that is not conditional. Um, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, personally, I, I, I take heaven as a place, I suppose. I mean, I don't, I, I, I think... it is within a certain manner of speaking. I'm trying, I'm just trying to be a little bit incendiary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, uh, yeah, I think uh, I have, I, I would say this like, uh, I have a very materialistic view of heaven, you know, where people are like, you know, in a happy place, you know, beautiful scenery, you know. Great... I believe that too. I mean, I course, they might yeah. as well be picnicking with Jesus. I don't even necessarily mean that as a character. For all I know, they could be. That might be great. I mean, sounds great to me. It's either that good or it's better. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Like, I think people enjoying themselves, there is no horrific diseases, horrific... I mean, if it's a place where you can't have challenge, you can't have resistance, you just have to play harps on clouds or whatever, that would suck. You know, heaven has to be everything good in this life, but better. And it's not more yeah. abstract or dreamlike. It's more real. It's more concrete. It's, concrete. it's more, more visceral. That, that, that visceral, um, hyper-vivid reality, that's like the glory of God. Like, that's, that's why you know, creation is. Um, and heaven is, like, more solid and more real and more, you know, more alive. It's not... Yeah. yeah, that's the thing, a lovely thing that I think of, I, I love about, you know, perhaps, uh, I mean, yeah, that's the thing about, uh, I love that where people are actually concrete, like, as you said, right, like William Blake, I think Joe, Joe I talked to Joe about heaven too, like he, he said, like, the, a plausible view of heaven is, is like where where I think that we are living, we are enjoying ourselves. There's like planes, cars, you know, movies, music, and all this great stuff going on without major suffering, you know, horrific suffering and stuff like that. Now, I wanted to ask about like universalism right now. Of course, I'm going to make a video in the future about that. I'm going to have to go soon in a little bit too, but we can end on whatever note you want to. Oh, okay. So, like, you have five minutes or ten? Let's say ten minutes. Okay, let's just say ten. So, perhaps with universalism, I wanted to like um, talk about like when you became a universalist. How did it like affect you? How did it change you? How did it change your view of others? Perhaps. That's a funny question because, like, you know, like you, I was like raised Hindu. Hindus are universalists yeah. and um, and um, you know I, I kind of I can recall it, it was like I, for a time I was fighting with God because I, I, I strongly believed in Jesus but but um, I also you know I, I listened to a very beautiful and compelling uh, lecture in the rethinking hell um, convention um, 
you know, there was a series of talks given at one of those conventions. I guess it's all associated with Chris Date, who's a very interesting and articulate speaker in his own right. But this this gentleman was uh, David Enstone Brewer, and he made a very compelling case that it, Jesus thought was annihilationistic. And and um, and I was pretty convinced by that, but I was also and remain pretty convinced by Jesus. And so I was like, God, you know, if if that's your notion, if that's that's how you do justice. If you create creatures only, you know, for them to be destroyed, it's like, you know, you you might as well, you know, it's like, if I get to heaven, I'm not going to be able to, you know, live with like the sort of, you know, the eternal misery, you know, occasioned by the knowledge that, you know, these, these, these people are eternally gone, you know, they're all part of us. Um, uh, you know, however proximately or ultimately, but if I love in the way that Jesus commands me to love, then I can't, I can't be insensible, um, you know, to, to, to the pain that they felt you know, before they died. And I can't, I can't not, but et- I can't help but eternally mourn their absence. So I was like, God, if that's the case, you're gonna have to just destroy me too. I sort of had, you know, had that kind of like that, that grievance um, that I remember, you know, in my prayers and, and, and um, but how did it change my thinking? In some sense, it just allowed God to be what I always knew him to be. Because whenever you have a, a, a conception of God that you deem inadequate, then whatever standard by which he is you know, felt to be inadequate in comparison, it's like that standard is the real God. Okay? The, um, you know, the, 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 the morality that we all intuitively respond to is perfect love, nothing less. It's like perfect, maximal, unfathomable love. And um, it's, it's, it says it in the scripture that, 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 that love believes everything, hopes everything, and never, never, ever, 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 ever gives up. The love of a father, yeah, the love of a father for his child, it never... Well, actually, there are limits to, to human earthly love, but but God is not like that, um, yeah. and so and so it, it just it just allowed God to be what you know I always knew Him to be because if you ever have a conception of God which feels disappointing or inadequate, it's because He's found that conception is found to be wanting in comparison to either you know it's like in into compare in comparison to a more ultimate and more true conception of the living God. Mm-hmm. Great, great. That was amazing. Like, seriously, thank you, Cal, for talking to me. I really loved this conversation. It was brilliant. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of fun. If you send it to me, I'll put it on my podcast, too. It was a lot of fun. Of course, of course, of course. I will send it to you today, I think. Today or maybe tomorrow, I will send it to you soon. Awesome. Uh, hey, how do you say your last name, by the way? Sarkanungo. Uh, Sarkanungo. Oh, so is it the stress on the second syllable or the third? Sirkanungo or Sirkanungo? You can say Sirkanungo. Yeah. I I guess in sometimes in um what what is your native language? Well, not native language, but what 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 Indian language do you speak? Because there's a whole bunch. Hindi. Mm-hmm. In Hindi, I think the the metrical stress patterns. It's like a lot of times equal stress. And that's not really something that exists in English. I wanted to put it somewhere, but you know, it's like it's kind of maybe evenly stressed. 
Sirkanungo, Sirkanungo. Anyway, um, yeah. Rajat, uh, I can say more easily, but um, it was a pleasure, Rajat. Yeah, thank you very much, Cal. Thank you very much. I'll catch you later.